Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. This is part two of our discussion with Yao Ling Jiang, founder of Following the Yuan, a popular newsletter focused on Chinese consumers. Before launching her own newsletter, Yao Ling wrote for outlets such as SCMP, Glossy, Vogue Business, and WWD. In this, the back half of our interview, we talk about some trends that have common threads with the West, such as quiet quitting and lie flat, as well as the comeback of buffets and the continued rise of health and wellness. We also discuss face kinis, coffee culture, scented candles, and more. We conclude our chat talking about the importance of research and development for Chinese beauty brands. Enjoy. I think it's so interesting to look at into the history of consumer culture. Back in 2003, when SARS was this pandemic thing going on, energy drinks were also a hit right after SARS. So what we observed in China is that there was this particular brand, Wai Xinren, like an alien drink developed by Key Forest, Yuanqi Senling, their big CPG company. Their product basically went viral because everyone who had COVID last year was thinking that I need electrolytes. I need to like, kind of refill myself. I need more nutrition in my in my water. So they just get box after box this electrolyte water. And I think that really gives the, the whole sector a uh, momentum. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. You recently wrote on three cultural trends that are similar in China and the U.S. Tell us what those three are and break that down for me, please. I mean, I've always thought China and U.S. are pretty similar socially and work-wise because we both work really hard. I don't know, Todd, are you from Canada? I am. Okay, sorry, sorry to exclude you there, but just because I haven't been China, maybe China. I mean, I think Canadian people work really hard too. Uh, so, I mean, I've I've lived in those two places. That's that's where my uh, facts, anecdotal facts, are based. So, I yeah. think based on that, I really want to like draw the parallels here, parallels here, because maybe some English readers only read. Uh, U.S. news, some Chinese people only read the Chinese news, but maybe what they cannot see is that how um, many similarities we have. So one of the bigger trends I'm sure that many, many people will know once I point out is the quiet quitting trend in the U.S. and the life flat, letter rod trend in China. Um, I think it actually started in China first with the anti-996 movement. For those of you uh, who are not familiar with the anti-996 movement, 
is something that started in the tech sector. Tech, Todd, you, you may be like very familiar with this. Um, people are disobeying the unspoken rules set by big tech companies. Um, they don't want to work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week, or even sometimes even longer hours. Um, instead, they actually they do want to achieve a work-life balance. And uh, I think so. So in terms of language, in terms of their aspirations, they want to express the fact that they want to chill or just take it easy. They still want to work hard. Um, so I think that's that's kind of what uh, life flat means. It doesn't mean that people are actually lying flat. It's just an inspiration because they still have bills paid. And with quite quitting, I think maybe you can explain to the audience better. Quiet quitting, unhappy in the job, but find it difficult to move or unwilling to move. So they're they're not working as hard or as diligently as their bosses or their company would want them to. They're mailing it in, as we say, but sticking around and taking the paycheck almost in a a bit of a, a flipping the bird, as we say, to to the company in that I'm going to stay here, but until you treat me properly or treat me well or pay me well or what have you, I'm going to take my paycheck, but I'm not really going to do my work. And so, and, and quiet quitting can involve the time spent whilst looking for other work or, or so on. But however they spend their time, it's not really working, but they're taking the money. Right. Huh. How do you feel about that as an investor? I don't think that I ever really had to worry about that too much, um, mm-hmm. especially the way that we invested at such an early stage. There was nothing really that the money always went into the company and we always monitored to make sure that the money was being used for company growth purposes. Uh, we would identify pretty quickly. I did have, I mean, I've had random instances where, you know, the company we invested in took all the money and bought all new computers for the whole staff and almost blew the whole dang thing that we gave them. When you're an entrepreneur, you you can't quite quit because you're quitting on yourself. Yeah, it doesn't exist in the startup world. It doesn't exist in my belief. <laughs> right. But good for them. I think I'm always um, a big supporter of workers' rights. And if they feel like they're doing so and the company can afford it, I say that, yeah, go ahead get more leverage. But let's move on to the next trend. I'm going to talk about food in the economic downturn and also post-COVID. So the trend I see in the U.S. is a comeback of buffet. And the trend I see in China is specialized buffets and uh, community canteens. So I think people know, yeah, people know about buffet, but what about community canteens? It's usually set up by the government to, to support senior citizens um, so it's government subsidized and they offer a wide range of nutritious meals uh, to senior citizens and they usually come at a very cheap price, cheap and affordable. So I think in recent years, the young people found out that they can tap into this, um, I mean, advantage that was supposed to be for senior citizens. So they, they are boasting about it on social media. They're taking videos saying how much money they're saving. And I also went the other day with a Gen Z friend in the canteen, and it was it was a pretty good experience. We paid 28 kwai, which is about the same as Starbucks coffee, to get a full meal. It was really good. 
Um, and what's interesting is that it's not just in China and U.S. Another day, a reader commented that it's also observed in Hong Kong. They have something called Liang Song Fan. I know I'm not, not pronouncing it right, but basically it's like uh, like two pre-made, I mean two dishes with a portion of rice. And usually, it's usually seen as something that only blue-collar workers or um, low-salaried people would get. So it has a very low social perception attached to it. But these days, I think the like the younger workers or white-collar workers don't really care. They they would rather save money than save face. So they would also get yang song fan or sun song fan, which which means like three dishes and the rice if they if they want to splurge. Has has Buffet made a comeback in Canada? You know, I think it's a difficult. I don't. I haven't seen it come back in hmm. force. Now, there's always the Chinese buffet. I love the Chinese buffet. My son loves the Chinese. I mean, we miss the food in China, so we try to we eat a lot of, but albeit North American Chinese, which is is very different. People in North America may not realize that chow mein actually isn't a real thing in China. Uh, it's a North American mm. 100% creation. I mean, there's obviously knots of noodles and whatnot, but not in, in the way, I mean, yes, the Shanghai noodles and things, but the classic chow mein, no, that I, I never found that when I was in China ever. But there's the move to health that is mm. typically sweeping a lot of the planet. I know it's a big movement in China as well, you know, with people getting more into exercise and more into outdoors and sports and camping and other things. Those are all on the rise uh, and doing very healthy in those sectors. And I think in Canada, you know, the thing mm. that I noticed in North America was a buffet. You might as well replace that with all you can eat for one yeah. price. And you could, you know, you'd starve yourself all day just for that buffet and then you would just try to eat as much as you can and put a bunch of egg rolls in your in your in your pocket before you leave that has a negative connotation to it as well mm. and that would not be a healthy way to eat and i think it's in north america not been the highest quality of food because you have to offer it at a very low price ergo there's no business model in the world that says you can get great food for an all you can eat and still, you know, keep the price down. That's not going to work. So mm -hmm. there's a bit of a, of a battle there. I'd like to see a comeback to me and the, and the canteens that you were talking about. From what I remember, it wasn't as much an all you can eat, but it was mm -hmm. just many, many choices. So you had a lot of options. You could go back every day and mix and match uh, from 20, 25 different food items and change it up every day, but at the same place. Am I right or wrong with that? No, um, I think they, some, they have different business models too. They have different offerings. Some, some of them are buffet style. Some of them are like pick what you choose sort of thing. And being in China, you it's also kind of obvious that maybe some, some business owners are just using the name to lure the target audience they want they're not even they're probably not government backed they're just calling themselves community canteen now because mm. now it's hot i want to switch to health and wellness because it has yeah. been one of the dominant lifestyle trends that wpic has been observing how is that impacting consumption trends and what are people buying with this increased focus on health and wellness I think to answer your question, I need to, we need to look at where the trends come from and what some of the factors behind uh, 
about rising awareness. I think the first one is policy, um, because over the last decade, Beijing has been pushing the sports industry to grow and to develop, and we've seen measures in 12th and 13th five-year plan. We are currently in the 14th five-year plan, which is this big economic guideline set by the central government. And uh, there was a stat that says in 2019, the market should add 1 trillion yuan um, compared with maybe a few a few years back in 20, 2016. And uh, just in 2021, the cabinet-level state council has set a new target for the sports market in the national fitness plan. That is, by 2025, the total country's sports market will reach 5 trillion yuan. So when the highest level of government set a goal, I think all the investment companies and big corporations will see this as a very, very bullish thing to do. They will think that this is a new sector to invest. And also the shareholders will be very encouraged to buy these company stocks. Um, and I think another thing I want to talk about is the consumer level awareness. I think just like when we talk about the, the anti-996 movement, people after that, especially after that, they've realized they, they want uh, work-life balance. And there's also been, I've seen a lot more continents on Hongshu discussing the, the importance of health and people are disclosing that they have certain illnesses, they have certain diseases that they're treating from the big ones like tumor to hemorrhoid. Actually, people are very open about their hemorrhoid and how they treat it at home. I think it's also part of the health wow. awareness trend. They, yeah, the millennial and Gen Z generations are a Good lot more open that, yeah, about physical health and also mental health. So I think that's a very, very good trend. Um, I think when it comes to specific categories, there are like certain things I feel like only China could have. And before I go into it, I, I do want to kind of gauge your perception on these two categories first. First of all, Todd, what do you think of pre-made meals? Like, what are they? Pre-made meals. Yeah, so pre-made meals, they come either already prepared and you only need to microwave. The other trend mm. here is having all the ingredients put together yeah. with the instructions on how to cook it. Um, but you are in control of cooking it. So the pre-made meals where you just microwave, they can be very healthy, sometimes cannot be very healthy, but it's extremely yeah. convenient, great for a busy lifestyle. And quite honestly, with the price of groceries these days, those meals can be a lot cheaper than what you're going to pay, not only at the store, but to go and spend the time uh, to shop and buy them, to bring them home, to store them, and then to take them out and then prepare and then have to do the dishes. You can simply just pay 10 bucks, throw it in the microwave, eat it, and then throw away the garbage or recycle the garbage or compost the garbage, and then you're done. So there's a lot of convenience to that. And I think getting the ingredients yeah. and more the box meals. That is also very trendy because you mm. know what went into it. You are the one who put it into it. 
you can hopefully mm-hmm. at least verify whether it was organic or pesticide free or non GMO. And you know how much salt and you know how much butter and you know how much oil and you are fully more in control of exactly how healthy you feel that meal is for your body. So it's gone very well and it's somewhat hand in hand with the rise of food delivery uh, as well. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I see a parallel in the last point too, because some of the first, th- thank you for the, the very well-rounded answer. <laughs> so with, with, some fa- with some delivery joints, they will just use pre-meal packages. So there has been some reporting telling their readers, especially the white-collar professionals, like do not eat takeout or only eat where the deliver guys eat. Uh, then you know it's not made from like pre-made packages. Um, but what we see is that the, the way you just described, what I just described is that there was this 2C business and there's this 2B business. Um, and now, these days I'm seeing even more extreme versions. So the process you just described, like the it saves time and energy from buying ingredients to prep, to cook, to like dealing with aftermath. So uh, what I see on Taobao is that there is there are quite a few D2C pre-made meal brands that they would just package like uh, maybe a pack of noodles in, in a plastic bag. Well, in a, in a like well-designed plastic bag, and they add sauces to it. And we have this um, like really famous, I think, fitness-oriented um, ingredient, Yu. I think taro or something that basically has zero calories and uh, zero fats. And uh, that's really popular in China. Basically, you can just add, well, it's pre-cooked, noodles are pre-cooked, and then you add your sauces to it and you mix it up, you eat it, and then you can just throw away the packets. You don't even, you don't have to do any cleanup. Would you call that innovation? I'm not so sure, but I just got myself a box to try uh, this week. Not sure about innovation. You know, another thing that's really come on here in the same vein of talking about this is ghost kitchens, Mm. ghost kitchens and investments in ghost kitchens and ghost kitchens are they have no retail presence and they have no real brand. But what they do is prepare the daily meals wrapped freshly made every day, but they're what end up on the shelves of convenience stores, of Mm. 7-Eleven, of Starbucks, and it can be sushi, it can be wraps and sandwiches and things like that. Most of what goes out on a day when people come in looking for a quick lunch to a convenience store or to the gas station or Mm. whilst getting their coffee, Uh, the ghost kitchens now are out there. They're they're produced. They make all of this kind of all these things. Uh, And then Starbucks or 7-Eleven or somebody can give them some branded packaging in which to wrap that all in. And then they go and then they price them when they get there, this kind of things. But ghost kitchens, big, big on the rise over here. Another thing in F&B, food and beverages, electrolyte water. Um, I was just reading this report from PwC, uh, and uh, I think it's so interesting to look at into the history of consumer culture because back in 2003, when SARS was this pandemic thing going on, um, electric uh, like energy drinks were also a hit right after SARS. 
So what we observed in China is that there was this particular brand, Weixinren, like alien drink developed by Key Forest, Yuanqi Sunling. Uh, their big CPG uh, company. Their product basically went viral because everyone who had COVID last year was thinking that I need electrolytes. I need to like kind of refill myself. I need more nutrition in my in my water. So they just get would just get box after box of the, this electrolyte water, and I think that really gives the the whole sector a uh, momentum. So yesterday I was writing about this new brand, Electrol X. I really, really like the brand because it tastes very good. It's not well. I think some of the flavor uh, flavorings from old brands are, are really outdated. But this Chinese brand, Electrol Electrol X, actually develops flavors according to I think the fav- like it's popular. Um, Preferences like there's this flavor grapefruit and peppermint and another one jasmine tea and the grape which I which are both my favorite and they're both zero calorie. They also added L-carnitine in it, which is like something it's like a amino acid derivative that can turn fatty acids into energy. So I really really like that. And with the rise of the sports culture and the sports communities, I think they the company did really really well tapping into these niche sports activities from free speech to cycling to CrossFit, and they are doing really well. Are those on the rise as well, like fitness,、uh, gyms, the CrossFit trends, the Peloton, any of that kind of stuff? And also, I'm curious about vitamins, supplements like that. I don't know so much about vitamins, but what I can say about the fitness world is that I think physical gyms are really struggling because I think after the three years of on and off restrictions, people are more used to working out outside. They are also used to meeting people when they work out. They see it kind of as a A form of social、uh, kind of hang, so they would rather they would rather like go join a running club, a cycling club,、uh, or just to try frisbee on the weekend or pickleball on the weekend instead of going to gyms because gyms are so boring. They still feel isolated at gyms, and also I think especially the people in、um, maybe the first year, second year cities are joining. Class pass, it's it's like yeah,、uh, maybe just like gyms for commitment folks. So we're not used to commit.、Uh, we're not used to committing to just one gym. We like we like to try varieties. We like to meet different people when we work out. So yeah, physical gyms and physical yoga studios are really really suffering because they still have to cover the rent and the yeah the. The human capital of everything, but that's not what people want anymore. Changing topics. I've been working really hard at the gym, also on a lot of facial exercises because I'm really trying to get my face in its beach body shape for my face kini. Oh yeah. So, so 
why is that one of the hottest accessories in China this summer? And I, I it's great to ask you about this because you're going to bring me the context. <laughs> yes, we know. We know what the face kini is. Put it together. It's a bikini for your face to prevent your sun from the sun from making you, you know, dark skin or getting tanned uh, or getting skin cancer or what have you. Preferable to a hat, I suppose, because you can swim with it on. Why is it one of the hottest accessories in China this summer? I've been trying to figure out why as well because I'm definitely not the product target audience. So Fiskini was hot for a while ten years ago. I think it went viral because Chinese people also thought that was ridiculous when some uh, middle-aged woman in Qingdao, which is a coastal city, wore a face kini on the beach. But this year, I think there are several factors behind this trend. One is that people are going outdoors, and uh, with outdoors, you need to do like the, the ultraviolet protective factor covering UPF face covers. So that was more of a professional gear, and I think with the golfcore trend or like at leisure trend, people like to wear what they wear in the outdoors. To the urban setting, so that's I think the aesthetics is influenced by the outdoor trend. But I think deep down, why do people wear face coverings? It's still the like traditional beauty standards playing its trick. So in China, we mean historically we prefer pale skin, which makes me very unpopular when I was growing up because I have darker skin.、Um, And that has changed because I've I've been getting more compliments from Chinese people too, from also from the older generation. So the traditional beauty standard is one factor, and also I think one thing I haven't realized until I looked into it, looking into the comments, is that it's very cost effective compared to putting up putting on sunscreen every day or maybe every. Uh, every hour or so, right? You can, can you just have to go out getting that、uh, face covering that costs maybe like fifteen dollars, and you are all you are just sorted for the summer. But I have to say that when I see these people、uh, in the subway on the street, I, I they still look ridiculous. The、uh, cost benefit analysis of what is your self respect worth? Maybe it's fifteen dollars. Maybe it's more. Not sure. Let's talk about the rise of coffee、mm-hmm. and the parallel rise of cool Chinese tea brands.、Mm-hmm. Now China is always known for tea, as they should, because the tea is amazing, and there's so many different types and flavors and and regions of where it comes from, and you could spend your entire life trying tea, different teas in China. Why? You know, and and I don't know if it's even fair to ask you this in the same question, but maybe it is. Why the rise of coffee, and do you have any knowledge or understanding of where that is coming from, or what's driving the rise of coffee? And then all of a sudden, there's not just tea, but you've got this quote unquote cool branding、mm-hmm. where it's on vogue, it's on trend to be drinking these particular tea brands. So, can you tell us a little bit about these two things, and maybe touch on you know demographics or flavors or how this fits into the young Chinese urban lifestyle? Where do I start? I think when people think of the urban consumer, they think of people in Shanghai and Beijing. But I I actually think we need to expand the scope. It's actually people from maybe one like first tier to even third tier, fourth tier cities. 
they are basically doing the same thing. That is drinking coffee. I think co- coffee has been in China forever. Um, I mean, ever since Star- Starbucks entered over 20 years ago, there are now like several waves of specialized coffee brand, uh, coffee trends. And I first lived in Shanghai in 2014 when I think it was the third or fourth wave of specialized coffee coming in. That's when I met the, the founder of Manor and founder of many other uh, soon to be big coffee brands. Um, but these days, yeah, I think the coffee trend in Shanghai actually surprises me also because Shanghai is now known as the, the city with the, the most coffee shops in the world. I mean, according to Meituan. I don't know if there's any prejudices over there, but there are over, I think, 8,000 coffee shops. And the people, I think, because we have such big number, people's perception on, on the price on positioning have changed. Um, if they pay what they used to pay Starbucks, like 30 quai, maybe like $5, $5 a coffee, they are expecting a lot more. They are expecting the coffee shop to have a perfect setting for them to take pictures or working with a, a perfect, perfectly stable Wi-Fi. But like what we drink these days normally in big cities is 15 quai americano uh, that's half price as as what starbucks cost and they are just as good and because we we are used to like taking them out and on the street so we don't really sit in the stores um and that's what i'm drinking now actually i got a takeaway Koti coffee which which mm-hmm. was founded by the founder of Lucking coffee who was kicked out because of uh financial fraud and he now has his own coffee chain another coffee chain Cody coffee uh based on franchise model which i don't think is a great model so yeah so it's, yeah that that's that's a coffee trend i hope i'm give you a bit of color um but i think people who like yeah. specialized coffee will still pay a lot of attention to the quality they they like to get their own beans from the roasters for example i do my own pour over if i'm like in my Shanghai apartment, I would do my pour over every morning. I get my beans from a specialized uh, roaster. But when I'm out and about, I will drink my 15 quai Americano. I just drink a lot of coffee. And I think my element friends drink a lot of coffee. When it comes to tea, I think, of course, we can talk about the, the rise of nationalism. I mean, not nationalism, like people are proud of their own culture. Yes, that's one factor. But what I've seen is also an upgrade of the supply chain. I think I went to a trade show in Shanghai a few months ago, and I think the whole supply chain have made it so much easier for small business owners to just do their own branding and to find a space because the big suppliers have thought through the whole plans for you. They even thought about how you can do the copy, how you can do the the drink flavors, how you can market yourself. Like as a small business owner, you don't need to think much anymore. So uh, along with the bigger um, popular tea shops like Hei Tea, Cha Bai Dao, Guming, uh, there are also lots of smaller shops because it has become so easy to set up a small business in tea in China. I want to lean in on something you said, which was the nationalism. And I think 
we've seen success by consumer Chinese consumer brands lazily explained away as simply it's just about nationalism. That's how they're getting the support because they're mm. local. Um, and then they start dismissing the quality of the Chinese brands, given that it can't be their success can't be based on quality. It's just nationalism at play. That is likely a gross misunderstanding of yes. both Chinese consumer preferences and the actual quality that China is able to produce across all sectors. I would like your take on that. I do agree with you that I think that is just talking about nationalism is a very lazy explanation. Um, I think I, I want to take the perfume and candle industry as an example. We've seen the, the rise of sea beauty brands, Chinese beauty brands over the years. And in, I think after COVID, it's a perfume um, because people can still use their homes. They can still like please themselves with the, a scented candle. Um, there have been a lot of like popular Chinese brands from two summer to mouth season and to something called Wenxian. I don't, I forgot the English name, but they have such high quality of goods. And uh, yes, they do kind of play into the Chinese uh, like cultural symbols of what a traditional scent uh, may smell like. But what I really see and I'm impressed about is the quality um, because I think since the rise of consumer culture in China, Chinese people have seen a lot. They've seen products from all over the world trying to tap into their wallet. They're not, um, there's Chinese word, who knows? They, they can just be like satisfied with the, like simple thing just because you're from abroad. In fact, I, I came across this Italian candle brand the other day and I was I was really surprised about how low quality it was, especially coming from Italy uh, compared to Chinese, chi compared to Chinese brands. Um, I think with Chinese beauty brands, there's still a long way to go. And a lot of larger companies are investing heavily on research and development because they know they're fully and painfully aware that uh, the Chinese marketers, Chinese brands have perfected, almost perfected packaging and marketing because they, they, they already know how to do that. I mean, they, I mean, the suppliers have been manufacturing for foreign brands for years and years. But what they need to work on is R&D. I think that's something that Chinese perfume brands have done really, really well. Um, take Guanxia to Summer as an example. I think it's really pretty famous among the CPG world. They were, I think one of the founders is a media person, another one, uh, they, they have very uh, strong branding background. And what they did a few years ago is that they, they started DTC first. They started on WeChat mini program and they, they would drop some products every, every Thursday. Some people may call it hunger marketing, but to them, it's also a way to stop people from overbuying because they only have limited um, um, supplying power. So it got popular back then and uh, leveraging on that initial success, they opened some offline stores, which were also popular. When you walk in, you kind of, you just feel like you, you've walked into 
an artist's home or an art gallery. I think the sense there it was like multi-sensory experience, and、uh, for the initial customers who were introduced to to summer、uh, WeChat, they can now、um, have the full brand experience, which prolongs their success, and they are still seen as one of the most、um, like successful case studies in Chinese perfume. I honestly believe that I could talk to you all day. I love what you are bringing to the podcast right now. I love the context. I love that you're very open about your own opinion and your thoughts. But it is well versed in data and research and understanding, and it's well thought out. And of course, you have both sides of the ocean backgrounds to draw upon to make some of those conclusions. So I really, really appreciate that. Yaling Jiang, founder of Following the Yuan Newsletter. Thank you very, very much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, Todd. Thank you for your time as well. Have a great conversation. For those of you listening to the podcast, don't forget we have the YouTube of this entire conversation over on the WPIC YouTube channel. And for those of you watching us on video, if you need to suddenly switch to audio only, we do have the podcast. It is on all the podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. But for me and for Yaling and for everybody at the negotiation, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market, exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at wpic dot co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.